Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm well. And how are you doing? You just came back from Jakarta, right? Yeah, that's true. We just landed, I think, two hours ago. And I'm talking to Lisa Echo, co-founder of Approach. And she is actually a very, very interesting character. And we will come to that later. But before I get started, Lisa, I actually got a reference from Sandy McPherson, one of my guests from the show. So you are one of my first women guests to get referred. And I'm sure we're going to continue this referral process. Tell me, how did you get started in the area of marketing and product strategy? Yeah, sure. I guess it's a pretty long answer. <laughs> I don't know. Please go ahead. I was, I was originally planning to become a journalist. That was my dream when I was growing up. But then I started working as a theater producer because I was also in theater and drama. And as a producer, you are basically the project manager. So you're managing the budget, the team, you do PR, you sales and all kinds of stuff. And I realized that organizing things and running projects, that was a lot of fun. And even more interesting maybe than becoming a journalist. So I wanted to study to become a, like a professional theater producer and make that my career. But the best school in Stockholm, they only accepted people every other year. And this was a year where they did not accept people. So instead I got the recommendation to start studying business administration. So I started doing that at Stockholm University and I realized, wait, if I can be a theater producer, if I enjoy running projects and, and leading organizations, why should I limit myself only to theater? I can do this in any kind of industry and I might as well study something broader so I can do it in any kind of industry. So that's when I started studying business administration. I found marketing very interesting. Then I guess it kind of moved on from there. I went into PR, the PR agency, communications. I had my own company at the time. And then I was kind of a consultant for this new startup many years later called Rap. It was a company I came in super early and I started working with PR for them only for two weeks. But then after one week, the CEO asked me to come on full time. So then I joined. And because we were only eight people at the time and we were growing very fast, it was a lot of different things to do. So I ended up working a lot with the product, but also in marketing. And I recall Rap is a very interesting company that came from Sweden. Maybe you can tell the audience what it does. I've heard of it and then subsequently your role in marketing and what do you do in that startup? Yeah, sure. So that was started for more than four years ago. Initially, it was a social gifting company. So we connected people via Facebook and a mobile phone and they could send each other free gift cards from different retail stores. So H&M, Victoria's Secret, Sephora. For the retail stores, it was a way to get people into the store. So if I give you $10 to H&M, you have a good reason to come to their store. And what they care about is to get food traffic and people into the store. Now we realized as we looked at the data and as the years went by that it wasn't 100% product market fit. We had a pretty good product market fit on the user side. We quickly grew to 3 million users in Sweden and abroad. But on the retail side, they needed more data. They required more data because they thought it was an expensive way to give at very generous discounts. So we pivoted one and a half year ago to connect also with the credit cards. And we also then scaled back. We were in eight markets as the most launched. So now it's only in Sweden again, trying out the, the new product, which is that you connect with your credit card and you have all the discounts directly on your credit card. 
So we noticed that the retailers wanted more data, and in the same time, the, the users, they were more interested in receiving deals for themselves rather than giving it to their friends. Mm. So we combined those two insights into a new product. And that's what the company is doing now. You've spent time between Sweden and San Francisco for a rep in your role in marketing. How are the cultures like? It's actually very different. So we started rep in Sweden and then expanded to a few different markets, but decided to set up a new like an office in San Francisco. So I lived two and a half years in San Francisco. I was heading up marketing, so I was running the team. So I had both Swedish employees and American employees. In Sweden, everything is very consensus driven. Decisions are usually made by those who actually do the work, not the managers. In the US, I realized that the expectations were different. So my team, they said, no, Lisa, you have to make this decision. You were the manager here. So I learned that I had to take more decisions. And I also learned that they were not very patient when it came to consensus driven. You can't just call a meeting with 10 different people and then try to eventually get something decided. You have to decide and do things. It was a little bit higher pace, which I think was very good. And I also think that in general, we worked with retailers and the professional, the way you approach professionals is also different. In Sweden, you can just get a meeting with the CEO. You can walk into their office and have a discussion. Whereas in the US, it's a lot of layers of manager and it's much more hierarchy. So you need to be careful in who you address and, and who you talk. Okay, I didn't know about the hierarchical <laughs> part of that. I, I expected that coming from European culture, but I can see why Sweden actually has seven unicorns is one of the highest maybe that's the reason are any other interesting career lessons you have learned from your roles in you know, theater producer i'm also a fellow theater producer when i was living in cambridge as well yeah. what, what are the other interesting career lessons i've heard i think one thing that i learned when i started to work with startups is that i realized how similar maybe you notice the same thing how similar developers are compared to actors. Actors and other people in the theater industry are very creative people and therefore kind of hard to manage. You need, you need to manage them, I guess, in a special way and creativity plays a very important role. And the same thing goes with developers. They are extremely creative people, problem solvers, and managing, I think, developers is very similar to managing actors. So when I came in to startups, people said, oh, it's like hurdling cats, you've heard that it's very hard to manage developers. I was like, this is just like theater, it's like drama. So, so people, I think, are, are similar in that way. And I think also leading project, it's kind of similar also a product launch compared to a premiere. You have this date, everyone is working really hard towards. So I think you, you learned a couple of those things in theater that it's very easy to replicate or, or to use when you come into the startup world. I have one interesting question to ask you because you're not the founder of Red and you came in at kind of running the VP of marketing, which is kind of an executive role. I guess this is something in Asia that we don't see a lot. Usually it's still very uh, adhering to what the founders say, maybe the top two, three key roles, and then after that, everything becomes very flat and hierarchical. How do you balance between those kind of roles? I mean, for you, it would be very interesting to share with how an executive would have operated in a startup. I think rap was pretty flat. So, of course, we had, we had a pretty big, we had five, I think, founders in the founding team, and then even more people who called themselves a founder because it was a broad Basically, everyone got the co-founding title early on. So it was a very broad co-founding team, which I think is a little bit unusual. As the company grew, we all just had to work. So we worked, I mean, everyone was very much hands-on. 
So it wasn't very much that some people did the work and other people told people what to do. It was everyone worked really hard. And then I think at some point my title changed multiple times. So did the organization. And at some point we, we realized that it was good to have like a centralized global marketing team who kind of handled all of the marketing. And then we also had like the same thing for like sales and product and so forth. I, I'm not very interested in titles per se, but it was then it came to for me to hire and unfortunately fire people and, and just to lead a team and make sure that we worked on the right things. I definitely have to ask you because you do marketing for Red, so probably you have a lot of advice on marketing for early stage startups. Do you? And I also know you conduct an online course too, and you've done some lecturing as a guest lecturer to marketing courses. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I think if you work with startups in particular, I think the biggest challenge in marketing is to stay focused because there are so many different things you can do. There are so many channels out there you can try. And a lot of people have opinions about marketing because everyone sees marketing. So people or they see the communication. So it's a lot of input from everyone in the team. And therefore, it can be very easy if someone comes and say, why don't you do this instead? Why don't you do that? It's very easy. If you don't stay focused and if you don't have your strategy, it's very easy to, okay, okay, wait, wait a minute, I'll fix it. You know, it takes just a few minutes. And then you end up doing a lot of different things that maybe don't matter. So I think staying focused is the one thing. And the other thing is that being careful what takes your time. If you're going to like social media or data or creating content that do takes a lot of time so be very value your own time because i think sometimes it's like no but this is a free channel and then instead we don't value our own time so maybe it's better to pay for something than, than spending our time so i think yeah stay focused value your own time and then also be extremely data driven if you work with digital products you have all the opportunities in the world to measure not only the different channels, but also what channels leads to the best engagement and what features are people using. And you can you can measure a lot of things and that data will, will help you make it better. So actually, do you like have any sense like which kind of metrics are very important to the user? Is it viral coefficient or some kind of metric like that? I think the viral coefficient is very important if you rely your user acquisition on virality. Not all products are viral. You can still try to make them shareable in different ways, but not all of them are viral. Rap was extremely viral. That's how most of our users came in. So we relied on that very heavily. We even had a viral loop. We had printed every screenshot along the viral loop in the office, so next to our whiteboard. And every week we had the data. So we had our standups there. And every week we would look at the numbers in every single step. And that would help us inform product decisions, see where were we leaking, where were we performing well. So for us, the viral loop was essential. I think in other companies, e-commerce, for instance, I think advertising or SEO, mobile app store optimization are much more important. So that means it's actually a lot of measuring is involved. It's very what we call ROI-driven in marketing. That comes to the most interesting part of the conversation. So you decided to pack up and started something called Approach. And we got through an introduction to a common friend I met, you and your husband, who've been visiting Singapore. I want to first start from approach. What is the motivation behind approach? What are your husband and you trying to do with the approach? Sure. So approach is essentially our own project, learning project. We aim to learn more about the world. Um, 
we started talking about uh, talking about this a while ago, and at the time we lived in San Francisco. And San Francisco, especially if you work in tech, is an amazing place to be, and it's a great lifestyle. But we also realized that most people in San Francisco are very focused on the Bay Area and what's happening there, and not so much focused on what's happening in the rest of the world. And we felt that we want to learn more about the world. So approach is that we're gonna, it's our project, just the two of us, we're gonna live in 10 different countries for the next five years. And the purpose is to learn more about the world. So we try to, in every place where we live, we will learn, we will consult for startups, work with local startups and investors. If we find interesting companies, we'll also do some angel investments on our own. So the idea is actually to spend five years living for six months, plus or minus, in each of these 10 countries you've selected with the highest economic impact in the next 20, 30 years. I know there are a couple of big countries, we talk about China, Brazil, and which are the countries you have selected and how do you select them? Sure, so we looked at what we want to learn about the world and about what's important in the in the future, right? So we looked at what are the 10 biggest countries going to be on a 25 to 30 year perspective. And a lot of smart people, like at big consultancy firm, they've done research on this, so you can just find those lists online. And they're not exactly the same, but we, we decided for now to live in China, Indonesia, Japan, India, Brazil, Mexico, Germany, Russia, UK, and Nigeria is probably going to be on the list, but I've been to Nigeria before, so I've said maybe we should divide Africa into Nigeria and maybe Ghana and some other countries because Nigeria is pretty rough. So these are the 10 countries now and uh, it can shift. Other countries we looked into a little bit are Turkey, for instance, the entire Middle East region that is not covered. And you're basing it out of Singapore, if I understand Yes, it. yes, we have our base here. That's, that's the reason how I got the interview. <laughs> anyway, so of the 10 countries, China, India, Indonesia and Japan are in Asia. What are the interesting parts of these countries that have caught your interest? All of them are big and I think that's why they, they came to our list. I think all of them are also very different. I think what most people here, it seems like both here in Singapore but also in Indonesia where we spent a lot of time now, everyone is looking to China and what hap what happens in China. Japan is of course much more developed but still in a huge market and if we look at the exits for, for most of the startups here, it's tend to be Japanese companies who, who acquire them. So it's a very interesting market both for from like investments but also exits. And India is a fascinating place, it's actually where Andreas and I met, mm. oh, <laughs> so, so okay. we look forward to go back there. And also a lot of things are happening in India. I mean, it's growing extremely fast and they have some really impressive startups there as well. India is very big, so will you be selecting cities? Which city yeah. you go to? So we, now we're thinking about Mumbai. It seems to be the city where a lot of the startups are. Of course, also Delhi, but we like Mumbai better. <laughs> yeah, it's more cosmopolitan yeah, it's, from, it's, from my last travel yeah. in, in Mumbai. <laughs> as well. You have started traveling, so I've been reading your blog too and also getting that you have some observations about Asia. My first question is probably from your travels in Indonesia and China, which are the two, one, two countries in Asia that you've looked into. What are your first impressions of the startup community? So China and Indonesia are yeah. very different. Yeah, maybe and start China first. Yeah, so China, we've only been a little bit now during the fall. So China is very, it's interesting because it's a lot of money in China still, even though. And uh, so it seems to be a little bit on the, the startups can really, <laughs> they can really, they can really 
state the, the, the terms. We actually were about to invest in a company there, but they wanted to have a, like we do most angel investments, we do in convertible notes, but they wanted to have an uncapped convertible note. And for us in Europe and US, that's not very common. But in China, they were able to raise money on an unconvertible note. So we did not end up investing because we couldn't agree on the terms, but it says something about how up until maybe a few months ago, it was very easy for Chinese startups to get a lot of money. I also think that China, they have their local heroes, a couple of, you know, really, really big companies, really successful entrepreneurs that everyone can look up to. Mm, the BATs and Xiaomi, for yeah. example. And if you don't want to, Alibaba and yeah, Chida Mobile and, and, and the rest of it. So when you were in China, you were visiting Beijing and Shanghai? Uh, only Beijing. Only Beijing. Yeah, and yeah. we were just there for a few days. What about WeChat then? WeChat. Yeah. Oh, WeChat is very interesting. And I think that's why, so what we wrote about also our like learnings, I guess, in the blog is how WeChat has succeeded in becoming a platform that are on top of the mobile operating systems. So before you have like iOS and Android, you also have Facebook as a platform that have a lot of games on top of it. But WeChat has succeeded to become this massive platform where you can basically do anything now these days. So you, you order your car, you order your food, you transfer money, you buy houses, you get wedding invitations, you chat with all your friends, you sign deals, investor deals. There are like so many like e-commerce that are on top of WeChat. So today, instead of building an app for iOS or Android, people build, build HTML5 apps for on top of WeChat, which is extremely interesting. And also I was hearing Bobin from SOS telling me that now you have WeChat growth hacks, just as people talk about growth hacks for Facebook, Twitter, exactly. in three, four years ago. Yeah. What about Indonesia? What's your impression of Indonesia then? So Indonesia is of course a much younger startup community. Indonesia do not yet have their first unicorn. They do not have their domestic local heroes, but they do have the heroes in China. They look at India and, and things like that. So things nearby, they, yeah, they can look at nearby successes, but they are yet to get their first unicorn. Right. Tokopedia hasn't reached a unicorn status Not yet. officially, I don't think. There yeah, are, yeah, like, yeah. Gojek has yeah. also raised a lot of money and I think yeah. they are on a unicorn level. But, but, but I think they still need to do their main, the first big exit. And, and with that will come, first of all, money back into the ecosystem. There will come a lot of experienced uh, employees and founders who can bring their experience and create new companies. So if you look at more, I guess, mature startup communities, look at Sweden, for instance, we had a big exit with MySQL many years ago. And, and those men are that reinvested and the people who were early there go on and start new companies. You don't have Skype, you don't have Spotify. And some of the early employees, not only do they get a lot of money from an exit, but they also get a lot of experience and connections and network. And this is all very valuable input into, into a community. And I think that's what's going to happen in a few years' time in Indonesia. How do you find the startup ecosystem as compared to, say, China? Is it very similar or very different? I think it's different. I, I'm not very familiar with the one in China, but if I compare to US and, and Europe, it's different because a lot of the investors that we meet now in Jakarta, they come from very traditional businesses. The money have been made on banks or uh, real estate or even cigarettes or coal, and now they are starting their VC 
arm so that the, the investors are very much, they have one foot into the new tech startup community and the other foot is still in the traditional business. And that's something I haven't come across in Europe or US. And if we look at the founders, almost all of them have studied in the US that we've met. And, and then now come back to Jakarta because they see a lot of opportunities there. And it's also a lot of family, it's a couple of very rich families who are funding, funding new startups. So there was a panel the other day and the question was, but how do you get money from your startups? And someone said, well, I have a very nice dad. And I think that's a comment that you wouldn't really hear in, in the US or Europe, but in Indonesia, that's... That's the way it is. <laughs> I think you probably heard it, hear this in most parts of Southeast Asia. Yeah. It tends to be very family business driven. Yeah. Well, the interesting part about it is that I think you just mentioned about some of these things that you don't see in Europe and the US. What about those things that are similar, there's reminiscence of U US and Europe? Yeah. If you start to talk to, to the investors, you talk to the founders, you get into the startups, you listen to conversations. Everyone is reading the same box. Everyone has the same lingo. Everyone talks about, you know, it's the product market fit and the growth. And, you know, you can, it's the same language everyone is speaking. So I think in those terms, people run businesses and have the same, you know, using the same KPIs. They use the, a lot of things are very, very similar, I would say. I wanted to ask you, so what are the differences from the perspective of culture, like founder attitudes and team structures? And I also have read from your blog that you talk about talent flow from Europe to Asia. What What is it like? I think, I think one difference that we've seen in Indonesia is that most of the founders have a business background. So they've studied at Harvard Business School or have more of a business background. Whereas in both Europe and the US, a lot of the startups have a technical background. That is also, again, like people are, they see that there is a lot of low hanging fruit in the market. There is a lot of opportunities. So people who are business minded, they are quicker. They, they realize there is a big opportunity here. There are money to be made here. And they start a startup just like they would start a retail business. So it's not, yeah. So I think, I think the founders have a, they have a, it's more of a business driven mindset. What about infrastructure? I mean, Indonesia is known for its transportation problems and also the mobile broadband and the speed of the internet. Do you see those things play a part in the startups? Absolutely. So everyone we talk to, and that's something we learned very quickly, is that infrastructure is the biggest challenge. And I think you touched to one of them. Logistics and distribution is one of them. And the other one is payments. Payments are very fragmented. So only 22% of the population in Indonesia has a bank account even fewer of them have a credit card or debit card. So payments, digital payments is very hard and it's something that everyone is, needs, all the startups need it somehow. So if you are an e-commerce or if you're a gaming company, you're kind of are reliant on an infrastructure, digital payment infrastructure that's not in place. A lot of companies are trying to solve this in a different way. And for instance, if you are an e-commerce, you have to have the option that people can go down to the local 7-Eleven, pay in cash, get a voucher, go back, and then buy it. And of course, this creates a drop-off rate of around 40%, which is the main issue for a lot of, of e-commerce companies. And you see that this payments issue, because I think in the emerging market, there's a term for this, it's called the unbanked. Unbanked exactly. means people with no bank accounts mm -hmm. and they form out of the 80%. And the challenge even for traditional banks is to reach these 80%. Yeah. So with the payments as a problem, do you see other, any other interesting problems as well? 
Infrastructure is the other one that you said, logistics. Mm -hmm. And again, this, all, this is also an opportunity. So I think we talked about Gojek a little bit, one of the most successful startups, I would say now, or one of the most well-known, hyped startups in Jakarta is called Gojek. It's basically Uber for motorcycles, but they do more than that. So going back to the platform that WeChat created on top of messaging, Gojek is creating a similar platform based on logistics. So with their, they have 200,000 now drivers, motorcycles, and with those people, they have eight different products. So they have Gojek where you can get a ride, they have Go Massage, you can get a massage or cleaning or food or grocery shopping, even moving. So they have a lot of different services on top of logistics. So just by having the logistics part solved, they can offer a lot of other on-demand services. So they want to become a platform for on-demand service, which is great. And that solves the, the last mile, as you say, in uh, e-commerce language. But there is still a problem. There are 7,000 islands and getting the logistics to work for more longer distances is still a huge problem. And I think people are waiting for someone to solve that. You selected Singapore as the base for approach. What's the reason behind this choice? Yeah, so we, we have a consultancy business, so we needed to set up that somewhere and we needed some, some kind of base in, during these five years. If we could, we would have set up a global company that's just based in the world, but the world doesn't work that way. And we found that Singapore is one of the most global places in the world. It's like a city and it's not very much of a national state. So we looked into a few options like Estonia with the e-residency, but also Singapore. And we found that Singapore is very convenient and it, it's also a great location. So within just a few weeks, we had company and bank accounts and everything set up and all the, yeah. all the administrative stuff. Yes. And it's also very, very easy to set up all these uh, structures as well. Very quickly. Yeah, I mean here we, I think from we, we sent in the papers to we got a um, confirmation, it was like two hours and our friends in Jakarta, they're waiting eight months to set up the company. So it's a big difference. And also one of these things is that in most of the startups in Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand, they actually, the investors kind of made them sign agreements with the structure in Singapore's jurisdiction. So probably a lot of people don't know about this, but something yeah. that is kind and of and a lot of the companies we met in Jakarta they have the headquarters in it's a parent company based out of Singapore so by being in Singapore we're getting close to the Jakarta and the Indonesian mm. ecosystem as well so I probably would ask what, what are the things you want to achieve with approach with reference just to Asia with reference to Asia I think I think the future in many many ways are in Asia I think when I was in San Francisco I worked for a company I consulted for a company who were they were very inspired by WeChat and what happens there. I know that Facebook and what they try to do with Facebook Messenger, they look at WeChat and try to now replicate or at least get inspired by, by the successes in China. So I think China in particular, but also other markets are going from copying the West to really leading innovation. So I think by being in Asia, we want to be in the future and get a taste of the future. And of course, Asia is very different. India, China, Southeast Asia is completely different places. So I think also just getting a better understanding for, for how, how different it is. So I'm going to hear a lot more about your adventures and maybe at some point I should talk to your husband. But anyway, before that, I also wanted to ask you about women in leadership, something that we talked about before the conversation. What are your advice for not just women, but also for men in terms of having gender diversity, not in just in tech, but in all industry for their career development? I think it's just about hiring, hiring the right people, being a little bit more 
a lot of startups in particular tend to, they start fast, they, they need to hire fast, they don't have HR, they don't have recruiting help, so people just hire out of their own networks. That's typically their friends, people they work with or study with, and if you tend to hire very, like people who are like you, like similar to you. So I think like if people can just have a little broader perspective and like try to talk to and get out of their own circles and bubbles, I, I think that helps a lot. But I also think, I mean, I met, I met a lot of uh, female entrepreneurs and people in business in Indonesia. I don't think it's, yeah, because Sweden usually tr believe that Swedes are the best when it comes to uh, equality. I spoke with a Swedish ambassador in Jakarta yesterday. She said, when Swedish business leaders come to Jakarta, it's only men. And then we meet the Indonesian counterparts and it's usually a third woman. So in, in that sense, like Indonesia, in the business life is a little bit maybe more, I don't know if they're more equal, but in top leadership, there are a lot more visible women in Indonesia compared to what she sees from, from the, what people they send from Sweden. I think it's just to be open. And definitely we'll revisit this again, maybe in a year's time, and maybe I will ask you what was it like then, maybe once you have traveled in the most and stayed in these countries and get a better sense of the ecosystem. So my last question, Lisa, how do my audience find you? So they can find me on approach.world. That's where we have our blog. We also, you can also sign up for our newsletter. Uh, that we uh, typically with all the secret stuff that we learn, we we put in our newsletter and not on the blog. <laughs> so people, so only the right people find it. Um, I'm also on Twitter. It's at Enkeli, E N C K E L L I. And I think yeah, from approach.world you will find all my contact details. Definitely. Uh, she has a very active Twitter account because I follow her. You can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com or subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud and Acast. You can leave us a rating on the iTunes store, give us some comments and I definitely would like to hear more feedback from you. Once again, Lisa, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much.